Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. In case you're just tuning in, this season we're doing a virtual road trip to figure out what's happening on the ground across the country in states that will likely decide the outcome of the presidential election. With less than 30 days left until the election, what issues and which places will decide the fate of the nation? To understand what's happening on the ground, as always, we're highlighting the stories of women who've stepped up to run for the House of Representatives. Last week, we talked about three overlapping pandemics, COVID-19, systemic racism, and political apathy. Today, we're talking about how widespread political shifts are playing out in one decisive county. Let's talk about Maricopa County, Arizona. The state of Arizona, which has 11 electoral votes, hasn't gone blue since Bill Clinton was elected in 1996. At any rate, we interrupt briefly uh, to tell you that we now are in a position to make another projection at the presidential level, uh, which is that President Clinton is going to win the eight electoral votes in Arizona. And that was unusual. Prior to 1996, Arizona hadn't gone blue since 1952. But momentum is in the Democrats' favor. In 2008 and 2012, the GOP took the state by about eight and a half and about nine points, respectively. Donald Trump took Arizona in 2016 by about three and a half points. This year, Arizona solidly sits as a swing state. According to 538, Biden is slightly favored to take the state as of last week. Experts seem to agree that one county will decide it all. Our district is the only swing congressional district in the state. And Maricopa County, as you've probably been hearing about all the time, we're the largest swing county in the country. I really believe that the way of our district is the way of Maricopa County, is the way of the state, is the way of the nation. So, yeah, no pressure. But that just means that we we have a lot of responsibility. And that means we have to make sure everybody turns out, everybody knows the issues, and everybody takes their vote very seriously, and that we make sure that every vote is counted. That's our candidate of the day, Dr. Hiral Tipperneni. Before we dive into her story, why is Maricopa County so important? Well, according to the New York Times, about 60% of Arizona voters lived there. From the year 2000 to 2016, Republicans won the presidential vote in the county by more than 10 points. A Democratic nominee hasn't carried the county since 1948. In most states, urban centers tend to be more Democratic strongholds, and rural areas vote more red. In Arizona, that trend has been flipped. Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix and some affluent suburbs, was one of the reddest areas of the state. Likely you remember hearing about its sheriff, Joe Arpaio. Joe Arpaio is known as America's toughest sheriff. For his crackdowns on illegal immigration and petty crime. He brags about making prisoners eat bologna sandwiches so rotten the meat has turned green. 
but underneath its strong red facade, Arizona and Maricopa County has been changing, particularly thanks to leftward shifts among educated voters in the suburbs and new residents in the state. In 2018, Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema won because of Maricopa County, not in spite of it. Here's Professor Wendy Schiller from Brown University, who you've heard from in the past few episodes. I think Arizona's turning blue. I think it's at least purple now with Kristen Sinema being elected in 2018. Mark Kelly looks like he has a pretty strong advantage there for the Senate. Uh, Colorado looks like to be blue. Nevada looks blue. So but the emerging states where you're seeing the same battles that are playing out nationally between very conservative Republicans and very liberal Democrats playing out actually within those state borders. And I think there are going to be very contested states in 2020. Former New Jersey Republican Governor Christine Whitman said she also sees the state changing. Governor Whitman additionally served as head of the Environmental Protection Agency under George W. Bush. I think they're getting more people moving in from out of state. You know, it's a little bit like what you see in some of the areas of Florida, where uh, a lot of New York residents are moving to Florida. You see more people coming into Arizona. It's been getting bluer, and yet it is the state that re-elected the sheriff after he had been sent to jail um, and sanctioned. So it's a, it's got a little bit of a quirky state, but I put a lot of it down to the new, newer residents in Arizona rather than the old-time residents that have uh, helped with that shift. And, you know, they're thoughtful people, period, the end. They're looking at this election very seriously. I, I have a house out there. I go out in the winters to Arizona, so I love it. And it's a great state, but it's got very, very conservative roots. And so that's the way, the only way I can attribute the kind of change we're seeing is to that shift in the population, the background of the population. Contributing to Arizona's shift in population is its robust immigrant community. According to the American Immigration Council, one in eight Arizona residents is an immigrant. Hiral is an immigrant herself. Her family migrated to the United States from India when she was just three years old. I think it's a story that is so quintessentially American, right? Um, my family immigrated to the States when I was three from India. And, you know, I, it's interesting because I've had a lot of conversations now with my dad. My mom has passed away, but with my dad about um, how he made that decision and how they, you know, sort of mustered up the courage to cross oceans to, to bring their young children to a country that they didn't know a soul in and did not have a job secured or anything. And, it, you know, what it was impressed upon me was just the there was a, a tremendous fear of the unknown, but there was a tremendous sense of faith in what was held in the possibilities of this nation, that my dad and my mom believed that the opportunities were there for the taking, as long as you know we were gonna work hard and we were gonna commit ourselves to making it work. Um, my dad had $7 in his pocket, and, and then, you know, they brought uh, two children, three and six, with them and began this new life. And, you know, my parents took all sorts of jobs that I don't think they imagined having to take, right? Working, my dad, who's a structural engineer, worked on an assembly line. He worked in a factory. At one point, he and my mom ran a 7-Eleven, you know, until he got his actual engineering job. And uh, my mom worked 
night shifts as a key punch operator. This is the hard work that comes to realize the American dream, right? But they sacrificed, they worked hard, they got, you know, a lot of kindness from people around them. And uh, ultimately, we settled in Cleveland, Ohio, on the west side of Cleveland. That's where I grew up. We lived in a, in a small working class suburb, and uh, the largest industry there was a Ford motor plant. Most folks in our neighborhood were, you know, union folks, right? It was teachers, police officers, truck drivers, folks who worked on the assembly line. And we were the only non-white family for miles. But grew up there, went to all public schools, uh, went to college in Ohio, went to medical school in Ohio. You know, what I learned in my upbringing um, was really just the importance of our education. It was about working hard at really taking full advantage of any opportunity that comes in front of you, working hard to optimize it for uh, your future. This isn't the first time Hirel has run for office. She lost her last race to represent Arizonans in Congress, but she's back at it again in an attempt to win Arizona's 6th Congressional District. This time, the Cook Political Report calls the district a Republican-leaning toss-up. You know, it's just a continuation, really, because uh, we made great progress in 2018. I'm very proud of the progress we made. We showed that folks are ready for change, and we showed the power of engaging with communities that had been written off as being, you know, well, they're conservative, so they're not going to vote for a D, or this one's, you know, progressive, they're not going to vote for our whatever. All that, those preconceived labels leave a lot of people out of the conversation. And what it showed is when you're willing to go talk to people and base your conversations not on politics, but on the issues, you're able to engage them. And they, they realize that their vote matters. They realize that they could vote outside of party lines and that party was not as important as the person. But obviously we didn't get the job done. And so I could not be prouder that, you know, folks reached out to me all across the district and said, let's keep fighting. Let's keep building on the momentum. You know, we know that we can get this to the finish line. And here we are. I feel particularly impressed with people who lose and decide to step up and run again. During reporting for the first season of Women Belong in the House, I learned that most political candidates lose before they win. And as many of you listening know, my mom lost in 2018. So I got a taste of how much it hurts. When my mom decided to run again, I was both proud and wary of the process. We'll talk about that more in a future episode. For now, let's rewind to why Hero decided to run to begin with. It all started in 2016. Yeah, so, you know, as I said, I felt like I'd always been in some form of service, right? In my emergency medicine work, in my cancer research work. And so to me, I think of this as another form of public service. But what really sort of pushed me over was the night of the election, right? A lot of tears. And my biggest concern that night, and still stays with me, is that threat of repeal and replace would go through, right? That was the biggest thing that was sort of hanging over, uh, looming over 20 million people at that time, that if uh, Trump won the election, they would repeal and replace because they would now have a, uh, a president that agreed with that in the White House. And um, that was unbearable to me to think that, you know, especially as an ER physician, having seen the struggle of thousands of families time and time again who did not have access to the healthcare system. The idea that overnight, you know, 20 million people would just, boom, be left without that safety net was unconscionable to me. And um, so I just felt like I had to do more. I didn't know what more looked like, but I felt like I had to do more. 
But so the next morning after the election, you know, I was just was frustrated. I was angry. And both of my girls, I, I was speaking with them in the next morning. Um, one was with me, one we were FaceTiming with my oldest, Mira. And I was just, you know, sort of giving them marching orders, right? Like, you know, we're going to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off. We've got things to do. We're going to be activists. You know, you guys are in college. You're going to be writing letters to to your Congress people, to your senators. You're going to be protesting and, you know, just giving them all these ways that they had to make sure their voices were heard. And, um, of course, one of the things I said was, you know, more women have to run for office. Uh, we need more women's voices. And, of course, my oldest, uh, Mira, who was on the phone with me, she just said, well, Mom, if not you, then who? And I didn't really have a rebuttal to that. <laughs> so really, the next day, I applied to the Emerge program. Um, and if you're familiar with Emerge America, it's basically to, to train and educate women on, you know, if and how they can run for office. But then it was March of 2017 where my sitting congressperson at the time voted for ACA, which was the, the repeal, the skinny repeal, as they like to call it. But it was a, a repeal and it would have, you know, thrown 20 million people off their health care. And uh, he voted for it. And it was that day. Um, in March of 2017, I decided I was going to run for that seat for Congress. And, you know, kind of the rest has evolved since then. Healthcare was and is a huge driving issue for people stepping up to run. Hero's connection with the issue is both personal and professional. When I was nine, after we had gone back to India for a trip and come back to the States, I came down with typhoid fever. And so I was sick. I was in the hospital for over two weeks. And what really struck me during that time was, you know, the panic on my parents' faces at the beginning and then the comfort that they found through the care that I received and the power of, you know, the physicians, of the, of the science, of the medicine, of, you know, them being able to not just cure me, right, but to uh, keep our family intact, right, to uh, give my parents comfort. I mean, it was immeasurable what they were able to do. And I think in the eyes of a nine-year-old, it was something that was miraculous, right, in some ways. So sort of planted the seed of, you know, this might be something I'd want to do. And then, you know, just being strong in, in my sciences and, and math and so forth, I ended up, you know, deciding to very much go down that route and did an accelerated program in Ohio. I met my husband in medical school. We went to Michigan for residency and uh, I chose emergency medicine because that was an area that to me, it was something that would always be engaging and surprising because you never know, right, what's going to come through the doors. I loved the idea of sort of being on the spot and being that first person to sort of solve the, the mystery or the puzzle, come up with a diagnosis and, and be there for people in those moments where, you know, they literally were in their, some of their darkest hours. After residency, Hiral and her husband moved to Arizona, where they've lived for 24 years and had three kids. After practicing clinical emergency medicine for 10 years, Hiral pivoted in her career, eventually getting into cancer research advocacy before diving into politics. She said the skills she honed as a doctor are essential on the campaign trail, particularly the need to interact with empathy. And I think that's really important to make sure that people realize that you are reaching out, whether it's related to the campaign or not, that you're just, you're there because you care and you want to know that they're okay. And you want to know that you understand that they're worried, that they're scared, right? A lot of people worried about their parents, their elderly parents, or 
elderly parents, you know, sad because they can't see their grandkids. And, and that's something we can all relate to, right? We've all felt some sense of loss. Obviously, some people have had much greater loss than others, but we all feel like we're missing folks, we're missing family, we're missing friends, we're missing, you know, whatever that is, or, you know, God forbid, folks who've lost loved ones. So having that empathy, I think, is is critical. And I think that above all else has really been our, our primary job is to just make sure the community knows that we're here and that we care. One major difference between 2018 and today is that, in case you somehow managed to forget, it's a presidential election. We know that that often ties the fates of candidates down the ballot to those at the top, and more eyes and more cash are turning to Arizona than perhaps ever before. Even so, major questions remain. Will people actually step up and vote? How can challenger candidates get the attention and name recognition they need? More on that after the break. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've been using at Wonder Media Network. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts, all virtually and risk-free with no out-of-pocket costs. On Bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates to promote a fundraiser to your community. They'll take care of printing and shipping the finished product to your buyers. I worked with the Bonfire team to create a Women Belong in the House t-shirt for all of you to campaign in and rock this election season, and I've truly been living in it ever since. Their fundraising feature lets you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales, and you can even send all proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. If you're a political campaign, Bonfire is also compliant with all campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. Bonfire is trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and Wonder Media Network. You can check out the Women Belong in the House shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. Make sure to tag me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan or Wonder Media Network on Instagram at WMN.media and any pictures of you rocking your Women Belong in the House t-shirt. And sign up for Bonfire's awesome platform to use your own platform for good at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. Other than Hirol, all of the candidates we've spoken to so far this season have something in common. They're incumbents. That provides them with an advantage. Incumbents tend to win. They have better name recognition and the opportunity to prove their skills at the job while actually on the job. Under the campaign conditions of COVID, it may be even more difficult for challengers to campaign and win. Kelly Dittmar spoke to the additional challenges for challengers. Kelly is an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University Camden and the director of research and scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics. There are a couple things to watch for. Certainly one is the challenges for non-incumbents. So for those who are new candidates, it adds an added layer of complication because if you're not already known and you can't do campaign events and you can't go door to door, that provides an additional disadvantage. Whereas for incumbents who already have a line of communication with their constituents, and actually their constituents are probably looking to them more in this moment, 
that they can dominate the conversation a bit more. And if they're effective in communicating information about the pandemic and you know how folks can connect with government resources, then it gives them some ability to reaffirm to voters why they should be reelected. Um, so that incumbency advantage, I think, gets heightened unless the incumbent really fails, <laughs> unless the incumbent really shows that they're really bad at addressing this crisis moment, which is something for a challenger to certainly pick up on. I asked Hiral how she's been handling campaigning with the restrictions of COVID. It's certainly not your typical picture of campaigning, right? We're not out there door to door. We're not doing these big in-person town halls. We're not having, you know, house parties and meet and greets and just not having that face-to-face contact with with folks in our community, which which I miss. I miss terribly um, because that is what reminds us every single day of why we're doing this. It's the stories that people tell us of what their family members, their neighbors have gone through, they themselves have gone through. And that's what, you know, keeps pushing us forward. Um, But that being said, you know, we've adapted, right? Uh, We've been in this now for six months. So we adapted fairly quickly. My team, you know, we immediately went to an all virtual sort of setup. um, And we have done, you know, a gazillion Zooms like everybody else has. We've done uh, Google Hangouts, we've done, you know, uh, house parties through Zoom. Um, we've done many, many Facebook Live town halls. And what we've really been able to do is use our platform, not just for this campaign, which is incredibly important, but really just as a, a resource for our community, because um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of, you know, non-medical folks spewing dangerous advice and so we've used our platform to try to be a source of accurate medical information and guidance and public health um, information and updated and then just resources, really, you know, folks who may have been applying for un- uh, unemployment or needing to, you know, find out where food pantries are or our child care or things like that, you know, making sure that they have those resources, they have access to those community organizations so that, you know, we can help them keep their heads above water during these very dire times. Like the rest of the country, Maricopa County has been hit by health and economic challenges that have shed light on enormous structural problems. I don't think there's a single person in our community that hasn't been directly impacted by one or more of those elements, right? And that speaks to the fact that a lot of these problems are are fairly universal, right? Obviously, the pandemic, people are worried about their health, the safety and health and well-being of their friends, their, their family, their colleagues. Um, the economic repercussions. I mean, we see small businesses shut down all around our communities, restaurants that have closed and small businesses that have shut down. Um, we know that, you know, uh, you know, thousands of folks in our community have applied for unemployment. Uh, people are worried about, you know, sending their kids back to school right now. Most kids are virtual, though some schools are in person. And that is obviously the big other, you know, conversation that's always at the forefront of, of conversations, uh, you know, with, with voters or with, with constituents, but the social movements are absolutely there as well, you know, and I think a lot of it is just about people being frustrated, thinking that um, their voices have been ignored, that they've been, their communities have been marginalized. And, and look, I mean, this pandemic actually has shown a light 
on the disparities in our communities, right? I mean, think about the communities of color that have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. Think about the populations of folks who are more likely to be frontline workers, essential workers, right? They've had no choice but to work. They've put themselves in the line of, of, of danger, right? And they also tend to be the ones who don't have health insurance. They tend to have more pre-existing conditions. They tend to have less access to healthy food and, and, you know, affording their medication. And so it's like a perfect storm that has really impacted those communities. And we see a lot of that in our native indigenous communities, like the Navajo Nation in our state. And so I think it's like a, it's a moment of reckoning, right? Where we say, it's not about going back. We, we can't go back to something. We have to go forward, taking all the lessons of this time, understanding the inequities in our system, whether it's in criminal justice or in healthcare or in economics or in education. And we have to address the root causes. And so many of those root causes overlap. We know that. And we have to address those root causes so that when we can find our way through this pandemic and on the other side, we're stronger. We're more prepared. Maricopa County residents will likely determine which way Arizona falls. Arizona could determine the fate of the country as a whole. Even as the stakes feel so incredibly high, the challenges that people across the country are facing day in and day out raise the question of whether people will make the effort to vote. As misinformation about mail-in ballots is propagated by our nation's highest office, will people feel too apathetic to take any action? Arizona might give us some early clues. Arizona has early voting and allows votes to be counted before election day. It seems as of now, at least, that the energy is pointing in the direction of participation. Well, it's interesting, right? I've lived here for 24 years. I don't remember ever this much attention being paid to Arizona, um, which is which is exciting because folks on the ground are engaged. They're paying attention and they realize um, how important their vote is and how vital their voices are, right? Um, and that they can have such a huge impact um, on people all across our nation. And look, it's not just about party. It's not. It's 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 about the issues. It's about healthcare. It's about the economic crisis. It's about our ongoing climate crisis. Um, you know, there are so many sort of literal and figurative fires burning, right? And there's this incredible sense of urgency that I think everybody's feeling, right, in some way, shape, or form. And so it's been about connecting to folks on that sense of urgency and letting them know that that we are in this together, that their vote matters, their voices matter, that they have to come out and engage, that uh, we're fighting for not just their families, but we're really fighting for the integrity of our democracy, because right now so much of that is at stake. With fewer than 30 days left of this election season, we'll find out soon enough. As we continue our trek across the country, I urge you not to wait to get involved. Please check to see if you're registered to vote. If you can't make it to the polls, make sure you know the deadlines for filing for a mail-in ballot in your state. If you can vote early, do it. Next week, we're heading to a state that has a contentious election-deciding history, the great state of Florida. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Liz Smith. It's executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. 
Special thanks to Louisa Garbowit and Edie Allard. Talk to you next week.